This is the So It Goes podcast with me, Rob, and my co-host, Dylan. And today we welcome a very amazing chap called Jonathan Haywood, who is, well, he was the assistant conductor of the Halley Orchestra, but he's now the lead conductor of the Nordwest Deutsch Philharmonie. He was a very interesting chap, and we touched on quite a lot of interesting points in the conversation. Yeah. I think at this point we should also bring up, he has a live stream coming up with the Halle Orchestra, where he'll be performing with the Poet Laureate, Simon Armitage, in January sometime. So mm. I will link the bio below and his socials, as with all of our artists. Without further ado, let's welcome Jonathan Hayward to So, so it, it Goes. So, yeah, um, one of the questions that I've wanted to ask you is, why do you think music can elicit such a strong emotional response? And, like, classical music's a great example of it because of how many layers there are. That's a, it's a really great question. Um, I think, like every art form, it's able to get to, like, the core of emotions that humans feel but can't really verbally express. And so, you know, things like, I'm a huge lover of poetry. I think poetry does it to a certain degree, but I actually believe that it does it only to a certain degree. Um, you know, it only takes a listen to a moral symphony to understand the depth of what classical music can demote mm. um, and can express. Mm. And, and so and maybe I'm saying this as a, as a biased party, but it's something that I think, uh, you know, in, in not in every art form uh, can you achieve this depth of expression, this kind of real sincere um, um, deep emotional feeling that classical music really I think elicits in a lot of um, different repertoire, really. Mm. I, like, when I'm not doing this, I do a lot of work at uh, music festivals. And I worked last year at Blue Dot, where the Halle performed. And I was able to watch them during the rehearsals. And I was just, like, so moved, like because to see like such a big force of like an orchestra, but like so vulnerable and like so like willing to make mistakes and things. It was one of the most amazing things I think I've ever seen in my life really so. But it's that idea of music drawing such an emotional response. Mm, yeah, I agree with you, Dylan. And I think, I don't know if this is what you felt when you went to Blue Dot, right? I, I almost went to that concert, so I really wish I was there. It was um, amazing. I do have to say that. I've heard, I've heard nothing but amazing things about it. But um, what, what I hear you saying, and what is something I, I hear a lot of from audience members, is the visceral feeling of so many musicians coming together to, to collaborate and create something bigger than one human being. I think that's the joy of what an orchestra is, and that's a joy of what my job is, is that 
I, I see my role as this person who collects all this music and makes one idea. And that is something bigger than one human being can, can make. So I, I think you're hitting on a really great point as well, is that it's not only the depth of the repertoire, but it's the actual creation of sound um, that is also so dramatic and so emotive in, in a way as well. You can, really, you can physically feel it, catch you know, in a concert hall or whether you're blue dots in the field um, somewhere as well, you can really feel it. So I think classical music has the power of, on both ends, that kind of that repertoire, the depth of the repertoire, mm-hmm. and this visceralness that we only get from live concert, really. Uh, I think as well, like with um, classical music, like you can almost because it's, there's more than one, there's more than one layer, and there's that much going on that it would be impossible for one person to do. You can pick different things out, like with the best example I'd say is in Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. There's a lot of call and response going on between the different sort of the different sections, like the brass will do one thing and then another one will respond or like first and second violin. And it's just, again, it's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting you just brought up Beethoven 7, probably, because it's currently on my desk. Um, and I'm getting prepared for it uh, in, in about two weeks' time to hopefully do it in France. And um, it's, you're absolutely right. It's a genius of Beethoven. It's this idea that there's so much communication, so there's conversation going on stage. Um, and like you said, the way that they interact, it's so you know, essentially Beethovenian that he makes, he makes the sounds completely have a conversation with each other. And that adds to the drama, the narrative of the whole piece. And it then becomes just this amazing audio version of a, of a narrative basically, you know, I mean, I, I think very much of my job as being a, a storyteller in, in, in bringing out these different conversations, as you just mentioned, Robert, is quintessential, particularly to Beethoven's music, but actually quintessential to making this narrative and making and presenting this, um, this art form in that way. Uh, so uh, I read on the internet that you almost fell into conducting by accident. How did that happen? Well, like most things in the beginning of my musical career, it was all by chance. And, um, you know, I, grew, I didn't grow up in a musical family at all. I grew up with a family that appreciated music, but mm. not, not really necessarily classical. It was more jazz. But uh, I was um, I was attending, I was, I'm from the United States, so I was attending a mm. public school system, uh, which I guess is more of a state school system, what you would call here. Um, it is a free music program, entirely free. And uh, I pick up cello and then went to this special arts school. And at that time, I was, think I was in eighth grade when our student, our teacher was unwell. Um, I, I basically, uh, we had a substitute teacher and the substitute teacher wasn't able to conduct. So we did the next best thing, which is throw all of our hats in a name I throw all my name in a hat, rather, <laughs> um, and figure all that and pick up, pick up a name. I was the first one to be picked, and it was terribly nerve-wracking. I was a really shy kid growing up, and I didn't like the idea of standing in front of people. Um, but I did it, and what was amazing about the experience is 
the idea of being able to look at the score and seeing all these parts come together, which goes back to our original conversation of this idea of being able to pull all this different, mm. these different sounds together to make something bigger than one person. And that's, that's where I became, became hooked, really, in the idea of becoming a conductor because of the collaboration side of it. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, Matt. So with uh, ideas of, like, collaboration, is there, like, any people who you have in mind who you'd like to collaborate with or anyone who you would wish, like, you'd want to collaborate with in the future? Yeah, um, I've had the great privilege of collaborating with some amazing artists so far. Um, one of them... Uh, only recently, uh, just last year, Augustine Hadnick, who is an exceptional violinist, um, uh, German-American. Uh, he's someone I adore collaborating with because he he likes collaborating as well. And there's something about this idea of being able to share music together, um, mm-hmm. you know, which maybe not every musician is up for, but, you know, it, it's so it's so lovely to find that connection. Someone that I, I would love, because I was a cellist before my conductors, and I've been completely in love with everything they've done, is Yo-Yo Ma. Um, he is someone to me that is amazing, amazing, amazing collaborator. I just you can kind of see it in his in his playing um, on stage, and so I, I look forward to the day that maybe that will happen. Um, but uh, but yeah, he's certainly up there on my list. I play a little bit of piano, not to like classical standard, but one thing I find is the cello is such an expressive instrument. And like, I always find that listening to, there's a few pieces of music that I listen to that'll put like shivers down your spine sort of thing. You know, when it just resonates with you. Yeah. Uh, are there any pieces of music that are, are like that for you that you could name off the top of your head? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think one thing that I can never really, as conductors as well, we, we all say this, I think, but probably it's a, it's a typical answer, but smaller symphonies and any of them really. I, I was, I happened to be studying uh, six before um, the lockdown because I was mm. due to do smaller six with my orchestra in Germany. Um, no longer doing that, of course. Um, but, um, you know, there's, is other models in place like you know the slow movement to model four just makes me well up almost every time you know it's just this pure kind of innocence of sound and it, i think it goes back to what i was saying beforehand is that it expresses something that you that one maybe is all we've all felt but we don't know how to put it into words and it's this deep kind of loneliness or this deep sorrow of some sort, and we've all experienced this, you know. But Marla is so able to put it on a piece of paper and orchestrate it in the most, you know, beautifully finessed way. Um, that for me, that that's the second movement, Marla Four. If 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 you're listening in and you've never heard of that, please go listen to it now. It's an absolute amazing, amazing, amazing work. I have to agree with you there because that is probably one of my favourite pieces of his as well. It's just so like emotive in a way almost. It's really, really amazing. Gets to the core of things, doesn't it? You talked briefly about lockdown in the pandemic and I was like wondering because the whole of the pandemic has changed the world amazingly, but more to a fact it's changed 
and affected the arts a lot. So I was wondering, like, how important do you think it is to protect the arts as it is and try and save it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's something that I try and reflect on every day while being in lockdown, um, particularly because I'm becoming a principal conductor and I'm going to be responsible for an arts organisation during such a pandemic. Um, I think what I, I think what I'm, what I'm getting to understand is that during this pandemic, we not only have a health pandemic around the world, but we actually have a severe cultural pandemic. Mm. Um, that's an epidemic that actually needs to be addressed. Um, and as as a musician, this is where I find my purpose. This is where I find what our job as musicians, as conductors, um, is to be able to alleviate this cultural epidemic um, by trying to really think cleverly about programming, to think how we can actually get music to people. Um, mm. You know, more and more, of course, now we're living in a world where people, loneliness is a thing. Loneliness is much more happening, you know, with lockdown and, and depression is on the, the, a huge uptick. Mental health crisis is, is was certainly in this country before the pandemic already died. And now it's even worse, of course. Um, and what I think it's, what I think it's time for now in the art is for us as musicians, as artists, as singers, you name it, to get very, very clever about how we can present music to people and give people this comfort within our art form. And it's hard because morale is low in, in the sector, as you know. I mean, we, you know, I've got so many struggling, you know, colleagues who simply can't support their family um, and colleagues who then have thought about other, other um, jobs, you know, we're losing, we're losing, we're losing people to this pandemic. Um, but I think what I find is that we have to, we have to, we will get through this without a doubt. We, we have in the past and we will certainly get through this, but what we need more now than ever is to have this sort of resilience to push through this in any way that we possibly can um, so that we, we can actually remind society that culturally we are relevant. Mm. You know, we're not just an extracurricular. We are re relevant to the kind of ethos of what makes a society tick. And it's our job now to get more and more clever about how we are able to present that in the most effective way possible. Uh, I think you've hit the nail on the uh, head there about sort of culture, because the one thing I find really weird is when what sometimes happens is if there's like an economic recession, the arts is the first thing that gets caught. But then you look throughout, not just sort of recorded society, but there's, there's evidence of in like prehistoric times, people would have carved, there's evidence of like bones with holes carved into them, made into flutes or reeds. So like the arts mm. have always been something that's defined 
people as being different from the other animals. So it just seems weird that when we're in a situation that almost everyone alive today has never been in, it seems it seems sort of weird that it's getting sidelined when it's one thing that everyone time and time again comes back to is music and film and sort of paintings and whatever. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, ask anyone, you know, how much more music they listen to while they're at home bored in lockdown or how much money more films that they watch or you know all these things and the disconnect is that they don't realize that they're the people who make this you know are, are people who have to make a living and, and survive on this and this art form so i think that's what i mean by making it relevant you know it's it is our job unfortunately this is what we have to do on top of our which you know being a musician being an artist is never was never easy you know never never was going to be easy and when you, and you go down this field and you don't go for these you go for it because you believe in it um but i think it is it is our duty to try as uh, what we can to make it as relevant so people understand that and don't make it this this this, this connection that actually without us without the living and breathing artists all of these things that you keep listening to, all these things that you keep watching to while you're bored sitting at home doing lockdown, will not exist. Like also in this time, uh, because the arts always seem to be so heavily hit, like they're the first sector to be affected in any form of crisis. And one sector, it'll, it has been affected quite a lot in recent times, is music in education. So I'm just wondering how important do you think it is that we carry on providing this musical education to children all around the world and children who may not have first thought that they'd be able to even fall in love with playing an instrument. Mm. Well, I think I think what we, you know, again, the fact that I'm constantly making and, you know, I write to a lot of people um, and and try and convince you know boards and um, individual schools and, and a lot of other funders um, mm. that it it goes beyond you know creating the next musician because there are studies that show and you know pamphlets of studies that show that the arts whether it is you know music or whatever the case may be, and if we are speaking, speaking about music, there's so much just within music that help the, the brain function of children. Mm. I mean, we're talking about brain function and brain development. This isn't just, this isn't just something that's, that's light. You know, if you, if you give a, a child an instrument, you know, they're likely to pick up math or science and all these different fields. So it's, you know, this idea that uh, people think that it's so separate, well, it, it's, it's completely disproven by science, you know. And I think this is something that I bring up when I'm writing to um, officials and, and board members all the time. I, I, I really try and um, express that, the, that this isn't just about building more music for tomorrow, but this is actually to do with the, 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 the quality of education that every child deserves to have. Mm. And that's, I think, I think 
when we take ourselves out of it as musicians, of course we want musicians, right? We want we want them so we can continue orchestras and all this stuff, but actually put it in in kind of people's minds that maybe don't think about music in the way that we do. And then if you even just think about it on a just a purely developmental um, basis, that even that is a is a huge, huge, huge um, you know. I think privilege that every every student, every school student should just experience because of how many facets it opens up to and and and, and allows it to be easier for students. It generally changes the brain development of a child. I mean that is huge. And if we get that message, this is what I mean about thinking cleverly and outside of the box about how we present it to people in power who make these decisions. Um, and when you, when you convince it on that kind of terms, I, I think it's very hard not to be persuaded by something like that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you brought up like brain development because one of the things that often gets mentioned in when they're talking about like palliative care of you know, people with sort of Alzheimer's or dementia, they mention that learning languages and musical instruments are often things that keep like you sort of your cognitive ability sort of sharper so mm. it's really i just thought it was really interesting that you mentioned that there's been a lot of studies on brain development and music in children yeah i mean i think it's it's amazing what we don't know in the medical field about the brain you know it's the one thing we they actually haven't pinpointed it you know, they really have, they, there's a lot of things that, you know, when you've got a brain, um, any sort of, um, you know, um, cognitive uh, disabilities of any sort, there's a lot, there's not a lot the medical field can actually do. But this idea of bringing music in, when you bring it to an Alzheimer's uh, patient and they suddenly remember your name or something, I mean, this... Mm. This is what I'm, this is, this is, you know, and it's not cliche, but it is, it is the genuine power of music. Mm. And I think that we, we, and I don't, I try not to say that because I think it's a very easy, fairy, fairy thing to say, you know, the power of music, but actually it is, it is really what this, what this art form can do to people and has proved, and have been proven to do to help people through cognitive disabilities. So um, it's, it's just, you know, excuse the pun, a no-brainer um, for, for, for music to be a part of everyone's life, um, but really uh, a no-brainer for, for it to be a part of young, young people's life. With like the arts and with music, it's always developing and it's always looking forward. And I've seen uh, one way you're associated with the development is that you're doing a live stream concert with uh, Halle called the Event Horizon. Yes. And I'm just wondering, like, is there anything you can tell us about the topic and the event? Yeah, so it's, it's going to be great to be back in Manchester. Um, I, I haven't seen them since I my last my last gig with him as, as the assistant director, so it would be lovely to react with them. This program is all about new beginnings um, and uh, kind of what that means, uh, you know, particularly it's, I found it very, very palpable um, going into the new year as we continue this pandemic. 
Um, and so I really collaborated uh, very much with uh, the artistic uh, director, assistant artistic director, Thalia, who's Louise Hamilton, who's a good friend of mine. Um, and it was her idea to bring in signing, which I, I really I loved. And I have a true true love for poetry, and I've always admired Simon's work. Mm. Um, then we've got um, on the program as well um, a dear friend of mine, Hannah Kendall, who is a British Guyanese composer, who will be conducting a work based on the uh, poetry of Lynn Sisse. Uh, it's also, of course, a Manchester-based poet. Mm. Um, and what we kind of, the whole the whole kind of trajectory of the program is starting out kind of dark, really. Um, uh, and then it's kind of, as we go through it, a rebirth um, through classical music. Um, it's this kind of dark to lightness effect, and ending with uh, one of my favorite works um, by Ravel, this Mother Goose Suite, um, which just ends in this remarkable, beautiful way. Um, in the gardens, as he goes. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it. I hope people really enjoy this kind of because the, the way we programmed it as well. How logistically do you go about trying to attempt something like a live stream? Yeah, so on a pure logistical point. Um, uh, you know, I don't deal with the ins and outs as far as, you know, what the orchestra is doing, but having now done two concerts, live streams, uh, one of the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden and um, one of the London Symphony Orchestra, mm. um, of course, there there has to be space between myself and the mus musicians and the musicians between themselves, mm. um, which is difficult, of course, um, and it proves that you know, we, we have to learn how to listen in a different way. Um, particularly, I remember when I, I, when I did the LSO, um, it was the first time I had conducted in six months. Um, and, you know, here I am at LSO St. Luke's, which is a quite a big rehearsal space, but the musicians are like, you know, just miles away, it feels like, compared to what one is used to. Um, and you know, it feels like a text message would receive better notice from the when I you know, do, do that rather than a cue to the trombones. And um, it's just it, it's a different feeling. But what's amazing about these orchestras, what's amazing about these arts organisations, is that they're getting very clever about how to make this, how to make these things happen. And this is what I mean. I think that people are forced to think outside the box. And, you know, organisations like the London Symphony Orchestra, Covent Garden, the Royal Opera House and the Halle have really, really thought this through thoroughly and, you know, in a way that we can safely present music to people. Um, and as far as kind of the footage and things like that, I don't really know how people handle that. But I think, you know, this is, this is a very, very clever way of thinking about space, thinking about how we do deal with repertoire, because now repertoire, of course, has to be smaller. We don't, we can't do very, can't do a model symphony, like I expressed, unless you're in the stadium. Um, and you probably wouldn't want to do it then either. Um, but uh, you just have to think about these programming ideas as well, which uh, you know, I think that that is really important because also you can only have an hour's worth of music, roughly, um, because of restrictions and things like that. So. 
people are getting created and my job is primarily on the programming but on the technical side of things um artists artists um you know the, the managers the artistic directors from state hands they're all getting they're all having to get their hands dirty it's beautiful to see that these organizations are actually just making it happen you know how you've mentioned about sort of thinking outside of the box uh how how do you think you could go uh, across getting classical music out to a wider audience? Because there's a bit of a stereotype of it being fairly highbrow and sort of like tickets being expensive and whatnot. How would you sort of expand classical music out towards the masses? Mm. I think it's a good, it's a very, very good point, you know. And it's something that I'm always trying to get more clever about. Um, mm. You know, coming to this country um, about six years ago, now seven years ago, um, from the United States, what was amazing to me is going to the proms. And I remember the proms because I remember going on a five pound ticket uh, to go see some orchestra. I'm trying to remember now, but you know, you go to the proms and it's going to be an exceptional orchestra, it's exceptional soloist, it's exceptional conductor, right? But for, for a five pound, you know, that really baffled me. That really amazed me. I mean, I couldn't get student tickets to the Boston City Orchestra where I went, where I used to live, um, for that amount of money. Um, and so, you know, you're right. We, we've got to get clever about how we can get this stereotype of being, it being eyebrow out of the way. And I think it does come down to a financial situation. Um, now, this is a catch-22, isn't it? Because to put on a performance, as we all know, costs a lot of money. Mm. And I think what that means is that we just have to figure out, you know, whether it be sponsors that help um, cut the dividends of ticket sales or whatever the case may be, we have to kind of bring that, I think that's a, that's a job for kind of management. Yeah? Mm. On an artistic level, um, I think what we have to do is constantly convince in our interpretation, in our, idea, our ideas, um, new listeners that this music is fantastic. Um, and that, it, you know, when I'm on the podium and I'm, I'm conducting a concert, I want them, I want this piece to sound fresh, whether it's the, the hundredth time that the, this orchestra has played Beethoven 9 or Dvorak 7 or whatever, whatever these, these famous symphonies are. And I, I want it to sound new. I want it to sound exciting. And so on a, on a pure, purely my job, what I do on the podium, my job is to make sure that this narrative is felt for them. So they understand that actually this art form isn't just about sitting down, clapping, and then going, going out. But it's about being part of the journey so they understand what's going on. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of different approaches to this. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things that we have to do in the podium, but we also have to do outside. You know, we have to do the work. Um, and you know, bringing it also to communities that are that don't don't get to 
see classical music very often. Mm. One of the most moving performances that I ever did happened to be my Los Angeles Philharmonic debut in East Los Angeles. And East Los Angeles is infamous for being quite a deprived area in LA. And we went to a community college, the Los Angeles Philharmonic went there, amazing. And we, they played to about roughly 1,200, I believe, 1,300 people for an entirely free community concert, entirely free. Um, and they can do that because, of course, they, they have subsidies, yeah, and they have people who pay for these concerts. But, you know, things like that, I will never forget. I had a line out the door leaving, and all of these people had never seen classical music before in their life. And so, of course, what our main job is to be able to get classical music in a community that doesn't usually, you know, get to see this music mm. and try and organize it so it's either free or reduced. So people understand that actually it, is, it has nothing to do with her being high up. It's nothing to do with uh, the amount of income that you make, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think as well, like, to a certain extent, I think it's it's almost one of them sort of ideas that doesn't exist with it being highbrow because like you could go and see uh I managed to snipe some decent tickets a couple of years ago to the proms. I think it was like thirty quid for two tickets, so it's fifteen quid a ticket. Mm. And it was just boxed on the day I thought, sod it, I'll go to the Yeah. And it's like you would struggle to go to a lunchtime performance midweek for a musical or even like a sort of a B-list sort of pop singer. You'd struggle to get a ticket for 30 quid. It just seems bizarre that people see mm. classical music still as being expensive when you can get world standard musicians for a fraction of the price of a popular pop star. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it is when you put it like that, that people can realise. But I think people, you know, you, you've got to get them. Sometimes it's interesting, it's a two-part approach because it's sometimes not just about going to see them as an orchestra, is it? It's sometimes the idea of even walking into these illustrious buildings that we play in, you know, and being intimidated by that idea. You know, if you even look at, like, the, even in Manchester, beautiful Bridgewater Hall, People kind of look at it and think, geez, I don't think I have money for that. You know, and, and I think, you know, growing up in, you know, a quite in a poor income family, I, I did that, you know, and I remember when I broke, I kind of broke that threshold and actually I was allowed to go sit into some of the rehearsals of the professional orchestra in my little area. And I remember walking in and thinking, oh, like, I just walked in here, like, it's not a big deal. I happen to not be paying anything because I, I was just looking at rehearsals, but but it's even sometimes just the context of, of where we are and how, where we play. And so that's why sometimes it's great to take it out of that context. Um, something that I've done and I'm so proud of, um, and I, I hope to do more of, is uh, work with the Birmingham Opera Company. And they, they work very hard at this, to, to bring classical music and classical opera, of course, into spaces that don't normally host classical music, so warehouses and, um, you know, malls and things like that, all these different places, and they think outside of the box because that the art form doesn't actually have to be in this, it's, it's lovely when it is, don't get me wrong, I enjoy it, but it doesn't have to be in this grand setting, does it? 
I think when you take it out of that context and actually just put it in some a neutral place, people actually then then are focused purely on what's going on in front of them. And I think that that's another kind of uh, a knack that we 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 should be really considering more is being able to place this music in places that everyone is comfortable with. Hmm. It's completely that accessibility as well. We need that accessibility and for people to be able to feel like they can approach the world of classical music and yeah one way we approached it like as my family was when i was with my younger brother we actually went to see you perform the snowman soundtrack and it was shown with an amazing like projection of it behind the orchestra yeah it was really special like I feel like because he would have been about eight, I think, at the time, maybe. So I right. don't think he would have had that interest. But ever since we've seen that performance, it was really sparked an interest for him. But it was mm. one of the most amazing performances I think I've ever seen because you had to sync yourself to the screen. So I'm just wondering how on earth does that work again with this constant ticking clock of yeah. actual film you have to perform with. Yeah, so I've done it several times. Um, I've done so many several times, but I've also done different movies to 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 screen. Mm. And it's a it's a hard task. It's a very, very hard. I won't even lie to you. Um, it's it's very hard. And normally sometimes conductors get what we call as a clip track, um, which you put in, I don't know if you're, you're aware of this, but you just you put it in your ear and it tells you the kind of metronome. I didn't have a clip track called Snowman, and I don't know why, but I never did. Um, and so it's, it, it basically took a lot of practicing with the film and just making sure you kind of get the timing absolutely spot on. Sometimes you get this kind of, you, get, you do get the timer at the bottom. And so I don't know if you noticed, but I had my own screen, and it was kind of slightly in front of me, and it had the numbers. Whereas you don't get that on the big screen, and so I, I I'm writing a lot I, while I'm studying. I'm writing a lot of numbers, so I make sure that you know when the snowball is thrown onto the window, I get really close to it and try and make sure that I, I, I get it right on the dot. Um, but I, I I have to say I'm I'm thrilled that you enjoyed it, and I'm happy that the accessibility was there. But I'm, I'm happy that my snowman days were slightly over because it, it was very, it's very stressful, <laughs> incredibly stressful. Uh, I mean, we completely enjoyed it, but good. Well, that's <laughs> all I care about. I, <laughs> well, care the about. enjoyment was there, so who cares good. about the stress? Yeah, exactly. Well, it was all worth it to me. Then that's great. Uh, we'll try and ask you like a few questions we ask everyone who we've spoken to and interviewed and the first one is if you could listen to one album or recording for the rest of your life who would it be god um uh any of miles davis's albums i any. think that would be amazing uh, any of That's them a good choice yeah any of any of them i was just trying to pick one and i can't but it's any of miles davis really I'm such a fan of him as well. It's just everything he does is the coolest thing like yeah, yeah. ever invented. But it's so unique though, isn't it? No one sounds like Miles Davis. No one can ever try to sound like him either. And I think that that's what we, I sometimes miss in popular music at the moment because everything just sounds the same, but 
that era of music is about identity, really. So yeah, Miles Davis, I'll say. Another thing we ask is, where do you draw your influences from or who's influenced you in your career? You know, um, this career is so funny because it, it, it drags you in so many different ways. Um, it's, there's so many influences, really. I, I don't know if I can name one, but off the top of my head, um, conductors that really kind of have influenced me throughout my career, certainly at the beginning, mm. um, or people like uh, Carlos Kleiber, um, the way that he makes music has always been something that I've been so drawn to. Um, and someone who's current and uh, I'm hoping to meet one of these days is Simon Rattle. I think he's someone, of course, who yeah. makes you know, amazing music um, and always thrilling. But both of these compo- conductors, rather, are very much about the narrative of classical music. And that's what I'm so interested in, is being able to tell a story. Um, so I think Simon and Carlos Kleinberg are quite good storytellers in that sense. In lockdown, what was the thing what got you through? It can be anything you want, but just was there one particular thing which helped you get through? Yeah, I mean, you know, I had a, I had a really good routine. And I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to get it back up because I, I was working for a little while and now I'm, I'm back home in mm. new towns and all this stuff. So I'm getting back to a routine, but um, a, a really strict routine of meditation, exercise. Um, and that, that really is the one big thing that got me through through lockdown. Mm. Um, you know, it's so, it, what, we, what we're all going through is so difficult because we have to, be at home much longer than we've ever probably been at home for um, in ages. And certainly for me, I mean, I, I, this is the first year I ever saw spring just blossom because normally I'm walking like a, you know, all over the place. And to just see spring in my garden um, was amazing, actually. There's, and there's some beauty of, of what has happened. Of course, we, we mustn't forget that through tragedy sometimes there's something beautiful. But um, yeah. routine was absolutely essential and the only way that I think I can continue going through lockdown is, is making a strict routine for myself. Mm. Uh, I completely agree with that idea of uh, from tragedy comes beauty and that idea mm. of like having that complete lowing down of the pace of life and just watching everything blossom and then fall into winter now it's just mm. something which everyone seems to take for granted constantly but we can finally just properly appreciate it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Just before we go, we've not really spoken about it yet, but uh, you have became the lead conductor of the uh, Nordwest Deutsch Philharmonie. I was just wondering, is there anything you can tell us about your plans for the orchestra or anything you've got coming up which you'd really like to share with us? Yeah, so I started officially with them in uh, January. Mm. Um, I'm so thrilled to be able to work with them. And they, we really instantly caught on chemistry-wise, and um, I'm just I'm so excited to be working in Germany with them directly. Um, we've got, I mean, my big plan with the orchestra really primarily is to explore different repertoire that the orchestra hasn't actually played. Mm. Um, they are, I mean, they've been awarded or noted, notified as being the, the busiest orchestra in Europe. So they turn out a lot of concerts, and, and by that, they turn out a lot of the greats. 
the big heavy hitters are looking at a lot of debates are looking at a lot of problems. Um, but what I want to do is not only challenge them as an orchestra, but also challenge the listeners to listen to different varieties of music. And um, so um, for the first time in, in January, they'll hear a lot of pieces for the first time and they also will play lots of works that they haven't played ever. So Charles Ives, I Answer the Question will be one of them. Mm. And, uh, and also doing uh, Schubert One, Schubert Symphony, First Symphony, which they've never done before, um, which I think is kind of one of the bedrock um, symphonies that uh, kind of changed classical music in a lot of different ways. Uh, during that era. So, you know, for me, as a, as a principal conductor of this orchestra, what I'm hoping to do is challenge and excite with new repertoire. Mm, that sounds amazing, that. And it's because, like, Germany's got such a rich musical past. But that idea of incorporating new ideas and maybe changing a bit from what people might expect from you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's not only for the orchestra, but it's also for the listeners. Mm. And that's what we must do, particularly as conductors, I think it's my job to challenge the listener, to actually say, but what about this? You know, mm. bring that to life. Yeah. Well, I think all there is left to say now is thank you very much for speaking to us. It's been an absolute honour. My pleasure, my pleasure. Really lovely to meet you both. And um, I hope you keep well during this lockdown. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, look forward to, looking forward to keeping in touch. Once again, we'd like to thank Jonathan Haywood for being a part of So It Goes. It was really great to talk to him. As with all of our artists, his socials will be featured in the bio below. And don't forget to get tickets to Jonathan's live stream performance with the Halle Orchestra called The Event Horizon, in which he'll be collaborating with the poet laureate Simon Armitage. Don't forget to subscribe to never miss an episode and leave a comment below. Thank you very much for listening and join us for another episode of So It Goes.